But before we start, uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to meet here together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to read your living and active word. Lord, I pray that we'll be uh, listening humbly to what you have to say to us through this passage. And Lord, I do pray that you'll be helping me to faithfully explain it to, every, to everyone here. Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Saviour, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not sure what comes into your mind when the topic of Christians being different comes up. There may be a lot of you who instantly think of the Christian stereotype of odd people who are a little socially incompetent. And when it comes to the cheesy Christian stereotype, I reckon that one of the first people that you'll probably think of is this guy. Oh, oh, sorry, I, I don't know how that got there. Um, I really mean this guy. <laughs> um, for those of you who aren't quite aware, uh, this is Ned Flanders. It's Homer Simpson's neighbour in the TV show The Simpsons. And he's meant to be the Christian character of, this, uh, of that show. And generally, he's just the butt of a lot of the jokes, um, usually due to his naivety, or sometimes for having that you know, somewhat holier-than-thou attitude. And this is definitely representative of how people think of Christians, especially in the US. They're a little bit weird, and uh, sometimes even a bit suspect. So the question we have to ask is, is that the right view? And if it is, should it be? The underlying question that we should be asking ourselves is this. What does the Bible teach us when it comes to living in this world as strangers. Well, before we get on to deal with that question, let's just have a quick review of where we've got to so far in this letter. Two weeks ago, we had a look at verses 1 and 2, and we saw how Peter described our new identity. We are elect strangers in the world, chosen by God, and set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then we went on from that last week to look at verses 3 to 12 and we saw that Peter was talking about our hope as Christians we saw that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ we've been given a rebirth a new birth into a living hope which is an internal inheritance and it's this hope that means we can gladly endure whatever trials we may face in this life now as we go into this passage we see that Peter begins by telling us how we should respond to that. Just have a quick look at verse 13 with me. This is what Peter has to say to us. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter is telling us that we have to get our minds ready. We can make sure we are self-controlled and, uh, have, and keep our eye on what is ahead. Because, friends, we are new people and we have a new future and so we have to be different. And right at the beginning here, he's preparing us for the fact that... Sorry. He's preparing us for the fact that this won't be easy. And so we have to be sure that we keep our minds firmly on the inheritance that we saw from last week. 
Now we'll see that he goes on to fully explain this as we look further into this letter. But in this section, he begins by just laying down the foundation principles. So let me introduce you, as strangers to the world, to Peter's introduction to being strange course. And in this introductory course, I think he has three lessons for us. The first of which is that being a stranger is to follow God's example. The second is that being a stranger is to relate to God properly. And the third one is that being a stranger involves loving one another. So let's just jump right into this and on to the first lesson. Being a stranger is following God's example. Do have a look at verses 14 to 16 with me and I'll read them out. As obedient children, do not conform to the, uh, to the evil desires you had when you, uh, when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter talks to us in terms of our new identity. Again, we're just left in completely no doubt that we're no longer the people we once were. The title of obedient children does seem somewhat appropriate for those of us who have experienced this new birth. But just keep in mind that the main focus of this verse isn't that we've sort of got a new identity card, so to speak. Our new identity is to show itself in a change in how we live. And to show this, Peter takes us to a time before we were Christians. And he places us at a point when we were completely ignorant of God. Now this ignorance just isn't an excuse for what we did. We're still very much culpable for our actions. But it does go some way to explaining what, we, uh, what our actions were. We didn't know who God was, and we didn't know about his ways, and so, naturally, we just lived as we pleased. But this is no longer appropriate, is it? Peter appeals to us, as obedient children, to no longer act in that fashion. Because we're no longer in the ignorance, are we? And why is that? Well, we know that the gospel has been preached to us. And as we responded to that, uh, to that message, we have been given a new birth. And because of that, we are brought into God's family. And because of, because of being brought into God's family, we are also called to be holy. Now, <coughs> this word holy does seem to be something that is commonly misunderstood. I wonder what would happen if I just sat and played a bit of a word association game with the word holy. What sort of answers would I get back? Maybe, maybe something like pious? Maybe it'd be something like having one of those halos like you see on the stained glass windows? Or maybe it'd say something like it involves being a goody two-shoes, a bit of a sort of do-gooder. I don't know, but I, suppose, I suspect those would be some of the answers you would give. But I want to tell you, that the word holy simply combines two ideas. One idea is the thought of being uh, set apart or being different. And the other idea is the sense 
of being pure, of being uncontaminated. Now, just in case you don't get this, let me give you an example just to demonstrate what this means. So once we finish this meeting this morning, uh, we'll go outside and there'll be tea and coffee served. Now, some people, somewhat like myself, uh, will like a spoonful of sugar in their coffee. Now, in this situation, if you want to go against every rule of coffee etiquette, this is the worst thing you can do. You take a spoon, you put it into the sugar bowl, put the sugar in your coffee, stir the coffee, and then stick the spoon back into the sugar bowl. (laughs) All that does is make the sugar wet and ends up placing stale coffee into the sugar. It's very, very unpleasant. Don't do it. (laughs) So to avoid this, what we'll do is we'll take one of the spoons and we'll set it aside solely for the purpose of transferring sugar from the sugar bowl to the coffee cup. No stirring allowed. And friends, that would be a holy spoon. (laughs) It's a spoon that has been set aside for a purpose. And it would also be pure. It would be completely uncontaminated with coffee. Which means the sugar bowl stays nice and pure without any stale coffee in it and it's all nice to be used by someone else. And we can say that that spoon has been made holy. Or to use another word, we've sanctified it. So right, we've got it into our minds what the word holy means in the context of teaspoons. But what does it mean when we talk of God being holy? Well again, we're looking at the idea of him being different. But he isn't just different in the sense that he's been set aside for a purpose. He's just simply different. There are two types of things in this world. There are the things that are God, and then there is not God. Nothing is like him. You're either God or you're not. Uh, and the, In addition to this, we're also referring to him being pure. He is completely uncontaminated with, with anything that is evil, and so is perfectly good. And because this is what, the God that we serve, then that's the, that's the way that we should be as well. Now, uh, we, are, we too are to be different in every, to everything around us. We are to be strangers. And we, are to, we too are to remove all traces of evil from ourselves. Now, I don't know what you may be thinking here, but when I first looked at this, I thought we'd missed a bit of the logic along the way. After all, God is a lot of things, and we rightly don't try and live up to everything that God is. He is all-seeing, he's all-creating, and he's all-powerful. But yet we don't get any commands to the effect of, be all-powerful, for I am all-powerful. So why on earth is holiness set apart? Well, Peter goes on to explain this in verse 16. When he quotes the Old Testament, the Old Testament command, be holy because I am holy. And this, this is a phrase that is used a few times in the Old Testament, but the first time we see it is in Leviticus chapter 11. Now, I don't want you to turn it up, but I'll just give you a bit of a summary. It's a chapter that is dealing primarily 
with the food laws. Basically, it's saying what the Israelites can eat or cannot eat. Um, and after all the regulations are given, and they're, they're told what's, what's available and what's not, the Lord gives this explanation. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. And from this verse, we can see a couple of things. First of all, we see the purpose of the command. It is to make the people holy. It is to set them apart. And you can just imagine how that would have worked. If you wanted to have a meal with someone who wasn't a Jew, who wasn't a member of Israel, it just would be that little bit less possible. After all, if you're not able to eat pork, well then you're going to start to look a little bit uncomfortable as the plates of char siu are brought out. If you wanted to eat, you would have to separate yourself from everyone around you. And as you did that, it would be a reminder that you are no longer the, the same as everyone else. And in addition to that, this verse also gives us the context for which, for, in which the people are to make themselves holy. It's because they are redeemed people. That is, there are people who were once in slavery and have been brought out and bought at a price to be with God. And so if you think about this, if God was pure and set apart, then to be redeemed by him involves being likewise. After all, what's the point of being redeemed if afterwards you're just going to stick yourself back into the same position that you were in the first place? It just doesn't make sense. And once we've got that picture in our mind, we can start to see how Peter applies this to us. Brothers and sisters, we see that we too are a rescued people. It's not exactly from slavery like uh, like from uh, it's not exactly from slavery in Egypt like the Israelites, but it's from a futile way of living, and that's something that Peter is going to show us in the next section. But precisely like the Israelites, the application of being redeemed from God from that way of life is to make ourselves holy like He is. Except, friends, we don't need to regulate our eating to be holy. Our holiness involves leaving behind our former way of life. And it will involve living a life that is different from those who are around us. And that's just the first lesson that Peter wants to teach us in this section. We've seen here that being a stranger will involve living a life as a redeemed person. And so, because of that, we will seek to live holy lives because the God who redeems us is holy. So that's the first lesson. And Peter's second lesson builds up on that first one. Again, he is pointing us to consider God and to consider the redemption that he has achieved for us. But he starts off with what may to us seem like a little bit of a surprising sentence. Do you have a look at verse 17 with me? This is what Peter opens with. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 
we seem to see two different relationships presented to us. The first is a description of God as a father, uh, which is meant to be a close and occurring relationship. But before we, get, we focus on that, we're also reminded here that God also serves us as a judge. The God that we serve is also a judge. And then, more than that, he is a completely fair judge. Did you see that there? He judges each man's work impartially. Now it's worth taking a little bit of time to consider what this means for us. Peter is reminding us here that God is not going to overlook little bits here or there. He's not going to favour one person or the other just because of personal preference. When he judges, it's the right decision. It's based on what we have done. Now keeping that in mind, then think back to what we, done, what we have done. And if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, we don't measure up that well. Especially once, we've, once we know about God's holy standard. And all of a sudden, we start to see why Peter uh, says that we are to live in a reverent fear. Because once we understand the holiness of God... His complete purity and his separateness. And then we realize that he is a judge and realize exactly how far short of that standard we fall. Then don't you agree that fear is actually a very appropriate response? But once we, it's once we understand that part that we can truly appreciate what is coming up next. So do read on with me in verses 18 to 20. For you know that it, wasn't with, it was not with, with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in this, these last times for your sake. Peter here is not pulling any punches on what our lives were like beforehand. Note how he describes it in verse 18. It's the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. The essence given here is of the ultimate meaninglessness that, is, that comes from a life without God. In the knowledge of God as a holy and fair judge, then the life without fear of him is going to be ultimately futile. And it will rightly lead to a judgment and condemnation at the end of the age. And notice here as well, that Peter's assumption is that that's the state that all of us are in. There are no exceptions here. There are no postscripts at the bottom of the page saying, well, if, you were, if your fathers were Jewish, or philosophers, or philanthropists, well then you're fine. All of us have inherited an empty way of life, and so face judgment from a righteous judge. But thankfully, friends, this isn't the end of the story. Because Peter makes it clear that if we are trusting in Christ, that we are also a rescued people. That we have been brought out of this way of life. And the redemption was in a way that only God could achieve. 
Do have a look down at those verses, and you will see that we are reminded that we were not redeemed by what Peter calls perishable things. That is, money, or anything that's valuable on this earth. That just wouldn't have done. The cost required to buy us back was much, much too high to be paired with anything that would just eventually fade away and disappear. What was required was something much more valuable. And in verse 19, we're shown what that is. It's the precious blood of Christ. And Peter goes on to describe him as a lamb without blemish. And again, he's going to point us back to the redemption that was achieved for the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, uh, we are given the story of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. And if you were to read that book, you would see that he does that by bringing judgment on the Egyptians. Now the final one of these judgments, or the final of the ten plagues as it's more commonly known, was the death of the firstborn in every household. So the Lord tells the people in Egypt that he will go through the land and every firstborn child will die. But as you read the story, you'll notice that there's a problem. You see, there are Israelites in Egypt. And if the Lord comes in judgment, how can they possibly be spared it? Because, friends, they are just as worthy of judgment as the Egyptians were. So how is it that God can save his chosen people, but still come in judgment, and more than that, still judge fairly? What we saw in our Old Testament reading from today, in Exodus chapter 12, of what the Lord commands the Israelites to do. They are are to take a lamb. But was it any old lamb? Well, can you remember the requirements that we saw in Exodus chapter 12? You can see some of them highlighted here. We saw that the lamb had to be without defect. We also saw that the lamb had to be chosen. It was picked out of the rest of the flock and taken care of for four days. And then the lamb had to be slaughtered. The lamb needed to die. And then we, then we saw later on that the blood of the lamb was painted onto the doorposts of the house. But what was the point of that? Well, if you go on a few verses to verse 13, you'll see this is what the Lord says. The blood will be a sign for you in the, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood was a sign. It pointed to the fact that in that household, a lamb had died. And so, the Lord would pass over the house when he came in judgment. Judgment was spared on that house because a lamb had died. So if we go back to our passage in 1 Peter, when when Peter describes Jesus as being a lamb without blemish, It's this redemption that he's reminding us of. Because do you realize that we face the same problem as the Israelites? You see, we call upon a holy judge. 
But do we realize that, that, that doing that means bringing us into the face of judgment ourselves? So the question we have to ask is how can God save us, his elect strangers in the world, without compromising his character of being a just judge? Well, friends, the answer to that is in verses 18 to 20. Jesus was chosen just like the lamb in in the Passover. And just like that lamb, his blood was shed, so the punishment that was ours could be taken. He is our substitute. But that's not the end of the story. Do read on with me in verse 21. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus didn't remain dead. God had placed his, our punishment on him and yet raised him from the dead. And further to that, he also glorifies him. And so we can be confident that his resurrection speaks to us that our punishment has been satisfied. And so it's right to place our faith and our hope in the God who raised him. Because Jesus' resurrection confirms to us that our, resurrection, uh, that our redemption price has been paid. And so we see that as strangers, we are completely dependent on God to spare us from the judgment that is to come. And so, friends, we live in reverent fear in the knowledge that he is a fair judge and our actions d- deserve punishment. But that's not all. We also live in the hope of a redemption that has been paid for us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the second lesson that Peter has for us. And as we go on, Peter is going to build on both of these ideas to give us a third lesson. And that is, being a stranger is to love one another. Have a look onwards to verses 22 and 23 with me. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for all your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, sorry, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now friends, it's a little, it might be a little bit difficult to grasp what Peter is talking about at first glance in these verses. And so we're going to have to look at these, this section as a bit of a hole to try and figure out what's going on. And we see in verse 23 that we have a reference to being born again. So if we use that as our cue, we can then go back to verse 22 and read that purifying oneself as referring to us as becoming Christians. And so from that, we get the idea of obeying the truth would refer to obeying that first gospel command of repent and believe the good news. And from that, we see what the point that Peter is trying to put across is that we've been saved for the purpose of loving one another. That is, that the, uh, the outflowing of our being a redeemed people 
will be a love. And Peter's focus is on a love that is primarily for other redeemed people, for other Christians. But we'll see from these verses that that really isn't our own doing. It's not us turning around as such on our own strength. Because verse 23 serves to take us sort of behind the scenes of what we've seen in verse 22 and to look at it from God's perspective. And as we've seen so often in this letter so far, the focus is actually on our rebirth. And particularly, we're looking at the, per- the permanence of that change. This, my friends, is now our eternal identity. And that is because we have been born again by the word of God. Peter helps to explain this concept by using a quote in verses 24 and 25. Have a look at that with me. You see that all men are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The quote is taken from Isaiah 40, um, and we're not going to look at it, uh, back at it, but the context is it's God proclaiming that he is going to rescue his people. But the main point of Peter quoting this passage is to show us the eternal nature of our new life. You see, we are all born of perishable seed. Uh, and so, at some point, we'll die and we'll no longer be around on this earth. But for those of us who are believing in the truth, who have obeyed the gospel command, we have been born again of God's word. Through the preaching of the gospel, we've been given a completely new start. And it's one that will never, ever end. And Peter is telling us that this life will show itself in brotherly love. So friends, if this is the life that has a future, then surely we should be showing it now. And so the question that should be coming to our minds is this. What will that look like? And thankfully here, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark. And he gives us a few pointers in the next few verses. Do have a look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is what he says. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all hypocrisy, uh, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because our new identity is characterized by love, Peter is telling us that, that this should involve two things. The first of this, these things is that we should cease in any activity that is contrary to love for our brothers. And we see that in verse 1. So I hope we see that because we show a sincere love to one another, we shouldn't be malicious. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't be insincere. Or envy one another for their possessions or their gifts. Nor shall we, should we try to bring down our brothers and sisters through, you, through our words in slander. 
But the focus isn't all on removing these negative traits. Peter also offers us a second task that really should take the place of these bad actions. And what's that? We are to crave spiritual milk. And that is, we are to live a life that is shaped by God's word. If you look at verse 3, you will see a slightly odd comment. Peter's talking of us tasting that the Lord is good. Now I want to tell you that's a slight allusion to Psalm 34. And if we were to look back at that psalm, we'll see that it talks about having a fear of the Lord. And that that involves pursuing a righteousness and pursuing knowledge of him. And friends, that will come from a study of God's word. And not only that, it will come from a life that will be shaped by our study. So we see that loving, living in love doesn't just involve not doing bad things to people, but also a pursuing of righteousness through the fervent study of God's word. So I just want to drive this one home. Being a stranger involves being born again and then living up to our new character. Not just by casting off our old selves, but by having a passion and a, and a fervor for God's word. And then seeking to shape our lives according to that. And friends, that brings us to the end of our introduction course. We have seen that Peter has just given us some of the basic principles of what it means to live as strangers in the world. And as we go on through this letter, we'll see him building up on these principles to show in more detail how these work in our lives as Christians. But for the time being, he set down the foundations. And just to review them, firstly, we live lives as people redeemed by a holy God. And so we should be seeking to live holy just as he is. And this will involve going against our old way, um, our old way of life, and also against the way of the world around us. The second point is we are to live as people who recognize our position before God. And so we live completely in faith and hope of God because it's only through his work that we can be saved from condemnation from a holy God. And finally, we live as people who show love to one another because we've been born again and so show the characteristics of a life shaped by the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the redeeming death of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his death and resurrection, that we do have a living hope. Not of a, not of a future that we deserve, but a future that you have graciously given us. Lord, we pray that as we, are, as we set our minds on that, that we live in life na- lives now in reverent fear of uh, you seeking to live a life, lives that are holy and pleasing to your name.
where he asks these things. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.